I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Is this a season that you are disappointed with God? Like I'm talking Psalm 88 disappointment, where darkness feels like your closest friend. The weather is fitting. <laughs> for a teaching to start here. You see, in Hebrew, the language that the bulk of the Psalms were written in, darkness actually has the final word in this Psalm. And my guess is, is that we all have these stories of darkness, whether they're prolonged seasons or they feel like a flash, a moment where we have no idea what to do in that space. And my, my guess is, is that we have these stories of darkness and that they surround the area of prayer, whether that's an unanswered prayer or perhaps an answer to prayer that you did not want in the first place. So what do we, what do, we do with that pain? What do we do with that pain when it's compounded by unanswered prayer that we've been leaning into and asking God for help in? What, what do we do with that? Well, I don't, I don't want to trivialize the pain that you have been in or that you are currently in by um, putting some sort of prayer technique in front of us and saying, now, if we do this thing, it will then open up the mystery of the divine and it will bring inner healing to those places of deep woundedness because that would be to, to minimize your pain and I don't want to really do that. So you rather... I, I would hope to offer us a, a way, maybe just a single invitation to, to hold the disappointment of prayer. How, how do we situate ourselves in the midst of pain? And to start that, I just wanna invite you to Matthew 26. We're gonna pick up in verse 36. We've been in this passage a bit through the, the latter part of this season. Um, and specifically in this series, in this passage in Matthew 26, we're picking up with Jesus in a moment of deep distress. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps you remember that Gethsemane is the, the, the oil or the olive press. It is where Jesus will be pressed out. It's the moment preceding the cross. And so picking up with Jesus in this scene, Matthew 26, 36, let us just read this and, and let's ask Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray in the discomfort. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You could, you could interpret that. I am deeply depressed and want to die. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Not as I will, but as you will. He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more, prayed the third time, saying the same thing, and he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man has been delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So we're just here to cheer you up today with this uh, teaching on disappointment and prayer. I don't know if you heard it though, but three times Jesus asks for something. Jesus makes this request of the Father. He, he makes this request that the cup, this place where Jesus will be poured out on the cross, that the cup would be taken away. And three times, as best as we can tell, and as if you track with the story, by the way, spoiler alert, Jesus does go to the cross. As best as we can tell, the response is not the one that Jesus was hoping for. Three times pain and disappointment kind of wash over this scene. What do we do with disappointment in prayer? And I, I don't, and this is a difficult thing, and, and I, I, I kind of flip-flopped and wrestled with this question, what do we do with disappointment in prayer? Because as people who are bent on pragmatism, that is like we have a high value for doing stuff and getting things done and efficiency, and we ask my prayers, what do my prayers accomplish? Or what is my gathering? You know, there's this idea if I can't actually get a, um, I don't know, a, a return on my investment of time, then it may not actually be worth it. So what do I mean when I say, what do we do with disappointment in prayer? I mean something a little bit different than our impulse. And this is, I mean something a little bit different than practice or action, which I, I hope to get to at the very tail end, but we need to do some work on more. What do, how do we be? I know the grammar and the language is really awkward here, but, but how do we be in disappointment in prayer? Just to turn to your neighbor here and say, how do you be in disappointment in prayer? As awkward as that statement is, that is as awkward as it is. How do you be in disappointment in prayer? And so to, to that end, I just wanna, I wanna draw our attention to the strange comfort in Jesus's words here. See, if Jesus's own prayers were not answered in the way that he wanted, what could that tell us? I think it tells us that there is a humanity to disappointment in prayer. And if there's a humanity to our disappointment in prayer, then there very well could be, I hope, as well. Um, but there actually might not be. There actually might not be any hope in our disappointment in prayer. I, I, this is not in my notes, and this might mean that we go three minutes longer. I think it might be worth it. Um, there's a temptation in preaching a sermon on, on prayer to say that God will work together all things for good, those who love him. Um, 
But I don't know if that's actually the way that it turns out. Because the psalmist ends with darkness having the final word. So in our lived experience, it could very well just end in darkness. And what do we do with that? Well, we have to have a way to situate ourselves in it. Because the mere fact that these words come to us as holy scripture, the fact that they've been preserved through the life of the church, and, and it means that there's a gift to be had in them, that it could actually be a normal part of our faith. Just imagine what this community could be like if we were a people who had space to receive disappointment in the world. Do you know any disappointed people today? Do you know any disappointed people in the church? Yeah, I think we like desperately need a way to hold this. We need a way to attach ourselves to the love of God in the midst of the chaos we find ourselves in. And so I love these words from Dr. Carmen Imes. Uh, she says this, she says, these words invite us to bring our darkest and most dangerous questions to God. She goes on to say that doing so does not disqualify us from the faith, quite the opposite. Doing so is the prerequisite of faith trusting God with how we really feel and with what we really think. Just pause for a moment here and um, no one's watching, just maybe close your eyes. If you're at home, you have the utmost agency to close your eyes. And just, just tell God what you're actually thinking and feeling in this season. Now, do you feel like you can um, bring all that you are to him? Do you feel like you can actually come to the creator God? You can open your eyes and um, I think that this can be the very thing that is the, like the crux of disappointment. That, that we want to come to God, we have an inclination to do so, but when we try to do so, there's like a block. We feel kind of stuck in that space. And so if we're gonna attend to some gut level honesty, I figured I, I might as well start. Um, so here I go. In my undergrad in Michigan, um, the love of Jesus kind of captured my heart. And if you know my story, this is where I first started following Jesus was in undergrad. So essentially I'm in like the sports ministry thing and I get invited to this thing. And over the course of two years, the cumulative weight of the gospel and the invitation to life in Jesus gives way. And in that space, I, I really wasn't sure what it meant to follow Jesus. I had some vague inclination that a, the church might be a part of that at some point. But what I quickly learned was uh, two things. First, that it would actually uh, come really soon and that then the church would deeply shape how I see God and how I relate to God. So all of a sudden, I'm this new follower of Jesus. I'm plugged into a local church and it's shaping how I see God and how I relate to God. And just to fill this out a bit more, um, when, I, when I say I'm new to this thing at this point in my life, um, like you talk about denominations, I didn't know what those were. But you talk about theological expressions, those are new words being squished together with new meaning. I'm like, theology, what is this? Tell me more, I'm interested. Uh, and then church culture, I had no idea that churches had cultures. Churches have cultures and they're often really weird. So there I was in the midst of this denomination, which by the way, it was non-denominational, 
which I didn't know that you could like be non-denominational. That was a new thing. The most I knew about the church was that the Protestants and the Catholics didn't really vibe. And I couldn't even really tell you why, because it seems like they were united with God, but then something uh, like happened and there were some letters on a door. I didn't know. And yet there I was, a new follower of Jesus in a local church with a theological expression and a culture in everything there. And one Sunday at this particular church, they held a healing service. Now I've recently learned that this was not the like MO, this wasn't every Sunday that they would have a healing service. But this Sunday after like the, the teaching and everything, um, they read this specific passage and then they held space for people to come and receive prayer for healing. And this is the passage that they read. This is James 5, 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Sounds pretty good, right? It goes on. The Lord will raise them up. Hallelujah. If they have sinned, oh, uh, they will be forgiven. This is good news here. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And this is, this is kind of like the, the thing that got me. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so with like a mixture of my, like the zeal of fresh faith and I think just my personality, uh, I'm thinking, okay, if healing is on offer, I want me some of that. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about like a, a metaphorical healing or like metaphysical, like, like I want emotional or spiritual healing. Yes, I want some of that. But I'm talking about like physical healing. I want some of that. And, you know, there's some layers here because when you're a new follower of Jesus, you often receive some encouragement to start reading the scriptures. You know, there, there's a new story that's true about you and you get to encounter that new story through the life of Jesus. And so the book that I was encouraged to read was The Gospel According to John. Um, by the way, I, John is so weird. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if there's any good place to just start reading the Bible by yourself. So it's like you need the buddy system to start reading the Bible because John has some remarkable claims. Listen to Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16. Uh, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. He goes on. And they will do even greater things than these. Jesus, by the way, turns water into wine. He heals lepers. He raises dead people. So does, does this mean he'll like do this, the, the church or the whomever, like those who follow Jesus will do greater in terms of volume or will they do greater things? Like what's greater than raising someone from death to life? To hear I'm a new follower of Jesus befuddled by these words, but he doesn't stop. He goes on in verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the father may be glorified in the son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. Turn the page. You go to uh, chapter 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Oh, you think that's it? No, go down to verse 16. Uh, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You want one more? Okay. Okay. I'm going to give it to you anyways. Uh, 1623, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. 
Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. How are you feeling about Jesus' words here? Do you feel like you have a buoyant spirit? Or maybe, um, maybe you've been in the church so long that these are the actual words of disappointment. So there I am in this particular church on a particular Sunday and healing is on offer. And remember, zeal, my personality, healing on offer, uh-huh. Like I'm, 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 I'm here for it, let's get it. I want the physical healing. I want the promises of Jesus to be manifest in my life. So I'm claiming promises as I'm walking down the aisle. I'm waiting in line like, yes, Jesus, this is here. This is, this is like, I was getting pretty hyped. You see, I was born with this rare condition. I have a, a bunch of tumors in my right foot and it's just, you know, born with it. And I've had a number of surgeries on it. And so there I am, I'm like, I want this thing healed. No, no more pain, no more discomfort, no more like social, dis like, yes, Jesus, I'm here for this. Let's get it. The prayer of a righteous person, that's what I'm here for. And so there I am. And to be honest, I don't remember the prayer prayed. I don't remember like the anointing thing. I don't even remember who prayed, but there was no healing. And by the way, my foot is worse today than it was then. In an odd turn of events, several years after this Sunday, I was still hopeful for healing, but I wasn't hopeful for healing at an altar. I was hopeful for healing at a desk in a library, at a seminary. And so there I was searching out all of the commentaries on James. And believe you me, there are a lot and they will give you every explanation for why you are not a good candidate for that healing. They'll tell you that you uh, perhaps didn't have a severe enough illness, or maybe the technique was wrong because they're talking about calling the elders. And so if they're doing it at a gathering, that might not be the place. Or then there's this one, there wasn't enough faith. Have you ever been told that you or somebody else didn't have enough faith, or maybe you should have had more faith? If you know me, I'm a bit of a verbal processor, um, which means I like to get things out of my brain and put it in front of other people and then we can poke at it for a while and see what's going on there. Um, you do this in seminary and that means you get to put your thoughts in front of other people um, who will often be really zealous and have very, um, as was the case of myself in seminary, pretty rigid conceptions of how God works in the world. So here I am sharing my frustrations over this one Sunday, this one prayer, this hope for healing. And this, um, this line comes to me, and maybe you've heard something like it. it. It went like this, God always answers our prayers. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. That was then and still is today. Maybe the most ridiculous thing I've heard on answers to prayer or disappointment in prayer. The sad thing is, is I've actually been somebody who's said it. I, what I've come to see, and I could be wrong in this, and if, if 
we can come to some clarity on this, that would be a gift and I would gladly turn and repent and hopefully bear fruit in keeping with repentance and never say this thing again. And yet here, this response, yes, no, wait, it not only feels dismissive of the pain, it, it seems to do away with or fail to recognize the complexity of the world we live in. This is, this is what I mean. Life with Jesus is more complex than yes, no, or wait. And I, hear me, I affirm yes, no, and wait as valid answers to prayers. I think that these are genuine responses that the good and loving creator God gives to those who are calling out to him. But what I do reject categorically is the sterile and lifeless means of holding disappointment in prayer. Yes, no, and wait, give us no space to actually hold the disappointment because it requires us to have three buckets of how prayer functions. Yes, no, or wait. Where's the enchantment? Where's the mystery? Where's the beauty of Jesus who, who puts on flesh to wait with us and to be with us in the midst of the pain? Well, it's lost and it's glossed over because we need certainty instead of confidence. This is not like, um, I don't know, a sexy thing to work through as a church, but I think it's a human thing and I think it's an honest thing and I think it is a gift that we can give to one another and to those who are wrestling with this of the simple statement, I do not know and I'm so sorry. So let's chase after this a bit because I think that there is some enchantment and some mystery and some beauty on offer here if we're willing to receive it. And so first, I just wanna, I wanna invite us into this uh, reality of where our prayers are taking place. You ever think about where your prayers are taking place? If you're like, Maybe you like going down to one of the cathedrals downtown because you want a prayer bench or something like that. Or maybe you have a closet. There's one guy who like has overalls and he uh, has his prayer overalls. And so he'll go into his prayer closet and he has overalls because he doesn't want to wear out the knees of his pants. So maybe that's you and you have some prayer overalls. So I'm not talking about necessarily that physical space that you find your spell, yourself praying. No, I, I want us to think about kind of at a meta level, a, a macro scale, if you will, that the place we're praying is contested space. Go here with me. This is pretty exciting. Are you ready? Yes. Contested space. Uh, consider Daniel in the Old Testament. And yes, I am talking about Daniel in the lion's den. Yes, the same Daniel, one and the same. Daniel chapter 10 Daniel, if you don't recall who he is, Daniel is a Israelite young man who has been sent up into captivity in Babylon, is essentially assimilated into that culture and yet remains faithful, has this resilient spirit to remain faithful to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And in that space, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel calls out to Yahweh in prayer. There's nothing. It's like utter silence. No consolation in his soul and then like three weeks later, Daniel has this vision and this is what goes down. This messenger of the Lord, this messenger of Yahweh comes to Daniel and he says, Daniel, your prayer was heard right away, except for I was kind of held up. 
You see, as I was on my way, the prince of Persia resisted me. By the way, the prince of Persia is a principality in the heavenly places who resists this messenger of Yahweh. So your prayer was heard right away. I was resisted. Finally, I received some relief so I could come and give you this vision and answer to your prayer. Sorry about the delay. So basically, there's some like meta-level principality warfare going on. You're tracking? This is, by the way, this is in the Bible. Um, you could just go and read Daniel 10. This is called apocalyptic literature. We don't have this genre anymore. It's kind of funky. Read it with a buddy. And, and here, here we find this. Daniel prayed, but his prayer is unanswered because there's legitimate warfare taking place in the heavenlies but he was heard right away. Life is more complex than yes, no, or wait. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to embrace a way of viewing and being in the world that, that embraces, it, it's a complex place that we live. It is a contested space that we, we live in. So it's not simply in prayer that God is up here in the heavens and I'm down here on earth and there is this like, um, one-way access between me here and God here. And if my prayers go unanswered, then clearly God has gone somewhere else. It's a complex reality with spiritual beings and cosmic powers in rebellion against the creator God and human flourishing. And apparently some of these spiritual beings actually hold up prayers. So are your prayers not being answered because they are in conflict? Maybe. I don't know, but what's the invitation there? Well, what you'll see with Daniel, this is where people get the Daniel fast. Daniel says, if my prayers aren't being heard, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna lean in. Because he's not content with not hearing from the Lord. He's gonna lean in and say, no, 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 I want more of this and I'm gonna continue to move in, which is not my reflex. See, knowing the place that we pray can help curate expectations to match our experience. If we know that we're praying in contested space, then it can actually help us to know that there's an invitation rather than some sort of broad hindrance or a God who's aloof. So if that's prayer at a meta level, by the way, how are you doing with cosmic powers and spiritual beings? Pretty good, yeah, that's lovely. So if that's prayer at a meta level, what, what do we do about like stuff at a micro level, at an interpersonal level? Well, at, at this point, I think the thing that we need to reckon with, um, and I, this can be kind of hard, is um, it's, it's our motives. Do you ever think about your motives in prayer? It's like, do we want what the Father has to give us or do we want him? Like it very well could be. Just imagine the father asking you this, like do you love me for me or do you love me for you? I hope that is, a, is like a mini catastrophe for you this morning. Do I love the father for him and who, who for the community of love and or do I just wanna be with them for my own sake? 
And this isn't a place of shame. This is a place of inquiry and just, just asking these questions like, if the infertility persists, will you love me? If there is no justice on this side of new creation for the deep, deep hurts that I've encountered, will you love me? If the healing never comes, if they say no, if this thing doesn't work out, will you love me? Do you love me for me or do you love me for you? So I, I submit that after three plus decades of like wrestling with something I have no control over, there are more moments than I care to admit that I just want the healing. Like I actually just, uh, I, I just want that. <laughs> I just want the healing here and now. It's like the horizon of my life with God, like all together plummets down to the floor. And I say, I just want the healing here. And what then wells up are the years of disappointment of thinking, maybe this won't happen. Maybe this isn't how God works in the world anymore. And you know, there's actual theological camps where you can live like that. It's called cessationism. It's where you just embrace a reality where the spirit doesn't actually move like that in the world. And sure, there's the miraculous stuff that might happen periodically. But I'll tell you, as somebody who spent a, the, like a bulk of my life following Jesus in that space, it doesn't yield deep wells of joy. In my experience, it was just more disillusionment. Is anybody else? <laughs> like, like we love God and all, but we kind of just want the healing. See, what if our disappointment is the very space that God is inviting us to move toward him? I just think back with me to John 14, 15, and 16, and he's saying, whatever you ask, it can be done. He says this refrain time and time again, in my name. It's like this little caveat, ask whatever you want in my name. Like there's a, a, a what does that even mean? Well, Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser, he, he says this, that to pray in Jesus' name is to pray with Jesus as our strength and burden of prayer. That is, it is at the core of who we are. It's not that Jesus is a name that we encant at the end of a prayer to bless all of our present desires. Instead, Jesus is our strength and burden. I love how theologian Larry Hurtado goes on and talks about to pray in Jesus' name means that we enter and catch this, we enter into Jesus' status in God's favor and invoke Jesus' standing with God. See, yes, no, and wait, they functionally leave God where he is up in the heavens and us where we are here on earth. They are disconnected, but Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. I know that you've already been seeing advertisements for Christmas stuff. It's here. It's like it's on the horizon perpetually. God is with us. This is who Jesus is. It is the divine breaking out in our midst. And therefore, Jesus' invitation and our disappointment in really all prayer is to stand in him with God. Is that where you want to be in prayer? <laughs> like in Jesus with God? It's desperately where I wanna be, but I don't know how the heck to get there. <laughs> because it does feel disconnected. 
I think this is the heart of the matter is Jesus's words in the garden where he's being pressed out, they invite us to bring all of our disappointment to the Father. That might not feel comfortable. And, and when we do this, like that invitation is extended, it's not so that we can just give him all of our stuff and then say, okay, now you manage my emotions. You're now responsible for this. He's, it's not, it's that he wants to be with us in the pain. And this is actually a deeply hopeful reality that the God who spoke and breathed life into us and is willing to breathe life into us again through the power of the Spirit wants to be with us in it. And this just, the thing that continued to come to my mind is the, the parable of the prodigal son. If that's an unfamiliar story, it's this story of a father and two sons. And there's an elder son and a younger son. And the elder son kind of has, um, he will get what's coming to him. There's a framework in time and culture and place where the elder son would inherit. He would carry the name of the father forward. And the younger son would essentially get the scraps, whatever the, the brother, the elder would give. And in the story, the younger son comes to the father and essentially says, I wish you were dead. Well, he doesn't quite say that. He says, I want my inheritance now, which is a way of saying, I wish you were dead. And the father gives him what he wants. The father actually gives him the inheritance. And just imagine the slap in the face that is to the older brother, because it's his. Functionally, in their paradigm of seeing the world, those things belong to him, not the younger brother. And yet the father says, right now, they're mine and I'm choosing to give them. The younger son goes and he, he squanders it. In Luke 15, he says, squanders it on wild living. He's just living his best life. And in that season, he starts, he essentially reaches rock bottom and just starts devising a way to find his way back to the father's house. And he, he conceives of this elaborate scheme where he'll go back to the father as a slave, no longer a son. But what he doesn't know is that the father has been scanning the horizon on the daily, looking to receive this child back. And so the son comes having schemed a way to make a way back in there just to be like a servant. And yet the father sees his child and runs out and lavishes them with love. The son doesn't go back because he has this deep welling of love for the father. He goes back because he has no other choice. And the father lavishes his love on the son. See, disappointment in prayer is just this invitation to come home, to be lavished in the love of the Father. And maybe you have some parental strife and you actually have no space to receive like the love of a father in your mind and in the season you're in. So just think about this. Think about yourself as this woman who will not give up to the unjust judge. Wherever your station of life is, like you will persist. This woman, she does not give up until the judge is like, fine, just give her whatever she wants because the disappointment is actually an invitation to persist. And yet so deeply have I been shaped by this paradigm that God is up here and I'm right here. And if it feels disconnected, something is far off. I think we need something more than thinking. That is, we need a different way to activate all of our person, 
Because we hold so much of like, let me just think about this rightly and then everything else will fall in line. But we need to get beneath that. We need to get to the heart of the matter, to the God who knows our pain, who knows our frustration, who knows our longing, the Jesus who lives to make intercession when we have no words, to the Spirit who takes our groans and articulates them in the company of the divine. We need to get to the heart of love. And before we do that, I just want to address a question that I imagine it came up for me and maybe it comes up for you. If this is who God is, if God is the God of love and is, has this generative capacity to create, why does my pain persist? And this is maybe not intellectually satisfying and in two minutes responding to it won't be. But in one word, love. You see, love is contingent upon freedom. There is no love without freedom. Because for there to be a choice to love, there needs to be a choice of anti-love, of what you could call rebellion. And this is often where we feel the tension that things are not as they ought to be. And yet love remains, love persists as this space of the Father welcoming us. This, this constant reality in the midst of everything. And so how do we situate ourselves in the discomfort of disappointment in prayer? We come home to the Father's love. And I want us to actually try this on. Um, you, you don't have to work through this. What I'm gonna walk us through is this little thing called Emmanuel journaling. Um, and if you've not, if you've kind of drifted off and you've been thinking about your own disappointment in prayer or you've been thinking that um, the Braves and the Astros are in the World Series and you're like, how is this going to happen? I hope the Astros don't cheat again, my goodness sake. Like, um, or you're thinking, Kyle, I don't care about sports. Yes, I've been thinking about my disappointment. Tell me, like, Emmanuel journaling is this gift from... Um, a marriage and family therapist, and he and his partner developed this framework to essentially bring us to a place of attachment to God. So all I'm going to do, and you, you, you can jot some notes down if you want, but there's a resource. This resource is on our website. If you go to our, uh, our formation section and you scroll all the way down to the bottom, you'll find it. It says a manual journaling. And what I want to do is I want to invite you, I'm just going to read through these prompts and, and maybe some responses will come to mind for you. And so that this, this would look like something like you sit down and you find some space to actually write this out and you just think of something you're grateful for. And you begin sharing your heart with God. You address God as Father. And you write that thing, that moment of gratitude. And when you have that down, then you, you take this moment to listen to God's response and then write down your impression of how God would respond to you. And, and that response starts with you as daughter or son. And then as you, you move through that, you, you get to the section where you, it's called thought rhyming. <laughs> You imagine God seeing your situation, your environment, your movement, your, your inner experiences, and it essentially has God seeing you. 
hearing you, validating you, and speaking his love over you. So you, the, the examples would sound like this. I can see you pacing back and forth. I, I can see all of your limbs have lost energy. Do you imagine God hearing you? It could sound like this. Like I, I can hear you saying to yourself, how will I ever get everything done? I hear the self-condemning voices saying, why do I keep messing up? I mean, God just, he has a compassionate presence with you. It would look something like this. Like, I understand how big this is for you. This is as big of a deal as when your parents announce their divorce. I understand how angry you are. It makes sense to me. And you imagine God's loving presence and, and his joy being spoken over you. And you just take a moment to enjoy that as best as you're able, wherever you're at, not trying to drum something up. It could sound like something as simple as I'm glad to be with you. I'm so grateful you shared that with me. And then lastly, it would be just God assuring you of his power to actually give you what you need, to remind you of his presence. And the movement of Emmanuel journaling is all like this place of helping us to attach to the loving care of God. This is what it looks like to come home to him. And then we actually, if you have someone to do this with, you share it with somebody. You actually bring it forward to someone and it makes it real. Because my guess is, is that as a community and as people in this community, we will constantly wrestle with our disappointment with God. And so we have to have a way to situate ourselves in that.